go. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Stephen Long. Welcome to the X Factor podcast, the podcast for human performance and leadership. Uh, today, I'm speaking with uh, Craig Jones of TPE Boulder, a private equity firm based in Boulder, Colorado. And Craig has over 35 years of experience in both uh, venture capital and private equity. Uh, welcome, Craig. Thanks so much for, uh, for coming on to the podcast. A pleasure to be here. All right. So tell, tell everybody uh, who you are and uh, what you do. Yeah, so I, you know, I really consider myself a leader of leaders, if you will. Um, you know, I don't run any companies. I, I um, advise uh, entrepreneurs who are running companies and have done it, as you mentioned, for 35 years. So um, as a young man, I got into the venture capital business and I've been advising, you know, small businesses ever since. Um, and my specialty areas have been healthcare and technology and the crossover between the two. Um, but I, I have been involved in some business services companies uh, as well, investing nationwide. About 10 years ago, I switched from sort of conventional growth venture capital into investing in the, what we call the very low end of the middle market, which is to say the private equity market, profitable companies. Uh, that you can do a leveraged buyout of, but 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 very small companies, companies achieving typically between two and four million dollars worth of EBITDA profitability each year. Mm-hmm. So the theory was that we could produce venture style returns without taking venture risk, that the loss ratio would be much lower. We're not going to hit you know a, a thousand to one or a hundred to one Google type hit, but we are going to hit. 10 to 1s, which we've done, and the overall returns for the last you know, 10, almost 11 years now have been very positive. As I say, we invest all over the country. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the, that 10 to 1 ratio is, uh, is very attractive, particularly with the, uh, you know, with the EBITDA as it is these days. So. Yeah, the, the, you know, the, I've been through, you know, I've been doing this long enough. I've been through a lot of downturns um, and some very severe uh, mm-hmm. prior ones like in 01, the dot-com crash was, was very severe for the technology sector. Obviously, 08 was, was a economy-wide downturn. And, and now we have one that, you know, is very challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we in general have found that our technology companies are doing quite well. Um, in many cases, actually finding opportunities because of COVID-19, particularly anything that has to do with work or learning remotely, being able to do what you need to do from anywhere. Um, and um, the healthcare companies have been harder hit. Um, the, the people simply aren't getting as many procedures done because of either fear of going into a healthcare setting or because in some cases there have been restrictions uh, for non-emergency type procedures. But those are fundamentally sound businesses. We're 100% confident they will bounce back very strongly after COVID-19. And so we're not worried about those companies. Then there are a few that are, you know, permanently impaired by by the downturn. You know, there, there are certainly industry segments that are, are very challenging. If you're in aviation, 
You know, you, it's, it's a tough market. If you're, you know, serving the oil and gas industry, it's a tough market. Probably not going to come back anytime soon. So every company's, you know, in a slightly different situation. We have a portfolio today of about 23 companies. Um, the, uh, what I would say is that overall, and I think this is true for me and most private equity investors, our companies are doing much better than we feared they would be doing 150 days ago. Um, it, it's uh, a factor of the PPP loans, which were the, the, the federal forgivable loan program that was implemented. It's a factor of our management teams acting quickly under emergency situations and effectively. And, and it's a factor of the fact that, um, as I said, some of them actually are finding opportunity because of the change. Yeah, that's one thing I try to get through to my clients as well, is that there's, even as bleak as this is, uh, you know, there are opportunities. We, you know, we just have to be aware of them. So let, let me ask you, uh, Craig, is, um, are we deep enough into this to make any valid comparisons to 01 and 08, or do we, do, do we need to wait a little while longer? Well, I think what nobody knows is how long this is going to last, right? Mm -hmm. So it, 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 a lot of us were hopeful that by, the, by now we'd be seeing basically a great reduction in the, in the number of infections nationwide and reopening, for example, of schools and other things. And there have been steps forward and steps back. And uh, some of that has been just because it's territory we've never been through before. Some of that is, is perhaps mismanagement, you know, at the state or federal level. Um, if you look at past pandemics, we know there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to all of these. So I always tell my CEOs, this is going to end. I can't tell you when it's going to end, but there will be a time we'll be sitting around talking about how crappy it was <laughs> and how better it is now. It, it certainly would be a shock if the whole thing lasts longer than 24 months. That would be extremely different than all past pandemics. And of course, we're in a much better scientific position today than we were in 1918 or other periods. Now, some of that actually delays so-called herb, you know, herd immunity. But mm -hmm. in the meantime, the drug therapy for the very ill has improved dramatically over the last six months, and it will continue to improve. Um, I happen to be chairman of a company in LA that recruits patients to clinical trials. We're actually doing uh, two of the vaccine trials that are already in phase three clinical trials. So as has been reported, there's a great deal of optimism that there will be vaccines available, say, by the first quarter of 2021. Mm -hmm. So if you include the natural herd immunity, uh, if you include the fact that, um, you know, these, these pandemics tend to, to, to run out, basically because it's not in the organism's best interest to kill its host. Um, so they, 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 they tend to evolve into a less dangerous um, version over time. Um, and, and then the drug therapy and the vaccines. So I think it would be um, reasonable to assume that this will be no longer than 24 months. And remember, we're about eight months into it. Uh, because, you know, a lot of us didn't know about it till mid-March, but it goes all the way back 
to say December or January. So we're already eight months into it. And I think the second half of it will be milder than the first half. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying we believe that we're through the worst of it. We're not done with it by any means, unfortunately. But the second half is going to be less disruptive than the first half. And, um, you know, there's a lot of resilience shown, whether it's in my laboratory of companies that I know about, whether it's the stock market, whether it's technology companies overall, the consumer spending report that came out that showed consumer spending above on a seasonally adjusted basis what it was in February before the quarantine. So there, there's, um, there are positive signs amidst the troubles. Yeah. Well, it's um, so what, what you're saying is that the, uh, the problem is still there, but the intensity will be, uh, will be lightened to a degree. That, that's what we believe. Yes, yeah, that's good. All right, so let's, uh, let's pivot to uh, leadership. Uh, what do you think is the best aspect of being a leader? Well, you know, and having done this for 35 years and having, you know, been sort of deeply involved with probably 100 companies, it's, it's, I've kind of had a laboratory to see, you know, what works and what doesn't. And don't ever discount the importance of luck <laughs> and mm -hmm. don't ever discount the importance of being in the right place at the right time, right? But mm -hmm. having said that, leadership makes an enormous difference, especially in a small company. Without a strong leader, you have very little chance of being highly successful. And so one thing we know for sure, there is no color, shape, race, gender associated with leadership. Uh, you know, there, there was a time when at Harvard Business School, they would have everybody uh, over six feet to stand up. And, that, and then they'd say, those of you who aren't standing up have no chance of becoming a CEO, you know, because it was all tall, white, male leaders. But th those days, thank goodness, are gone. And, you know, leaders come in all different shapes and sizes. Uh, we've had tremendous success with female CEOs because I've been heavily involved in healthcare there's been a great deal of female leadership there, not as much in technology, unfortunately, that hopefully will change over time. But, you know, our biggest hits, you know, you know, if I look at our top five biggest hits over the last 20 years, you know, several of them are female CEOs. So um, to me, um, leadership is substance. It's not style. Mm -hmm. So by that, I mean, you, the first thing a leader has to be is an expert. You have to know every aspect of what the company does. It doesn't mean that if you're a technology company, you're necessarily a programmer, but you better know the value proposition that that software is delivering and why it makes a difference and how it differs from your competition and what the price points are that make a difference to your customers. So you have to to sweat the details. There's no room for bullshit. And your workforce will know your level of expertise better than anybody else. So you have to be a sponge. You have to absorb as much information from your experts, from your, your sales person, your marketing person, your technology person, and you have to provide the overall strategic direction. Okay. So one is sweating the details, knowing exact you know what it is that makes your company different the, the, and, and and of course work ethic is a big part of that 
I mean, there's, there's no work-life balance when it comes to running a small company. I, we tell our CEOs that upfront. You know, you're going to spend five years or six years or seven years working way too hard. And that's just the way it is. And if that's not, doesn't fit you, your lifestyle, then go do something else. You know, that's fine. I'm not making a value judgment about it. We, we like to say that we want people with unbalanced personalities, right? We want people who are absolutely committed to success. And, and that brings me to the second point, which is optimism. You know, a, a, a leader must be optimistic. They must believe that where there's a will, there's a way. And that optimism has to be real. It can't be, it can't be uh, created. And, and if you're an optimistic person, and if you believe there's a way, and your people will, it, it's infectious. It, it will be absorbed by the people around you. And, the, you know, the, the third thing is, you know, good leaders work on the most difficult problems in their companies. They don't do just the fun stuff. Yeah. Like a podcast, for example. A podcast mm -hmm. is fun and it's necessary and there's parts of the job that are fun to do. But there's also a lot of parts of the job that aren't fun. And my best CEOs get up in the morning and they, they go right after the least fun thing. That difficult conversation with a manager who's not uh, doing their job right. That difficult conversation with somebody who is doing things that don't fit the culture of the company. That difficult conversation with the customer who's pissed off. So you have to have a stomach for hardship. I mean, I have a CEO who this year has gone through the following. Number one, 98% of his customers were shut down oh. by the pandemic. He happens to be servicing the retail industry and his subsector, 98% of the mm -hmm. units that he sells point of sale to, technology to, were shut down. Mm -hmm. Second, he, he had a situation where a competitor did a very unethical thing involving stealing technology. And so had to get involved in litigation. And then third was the urban unrest that broke out literally within walking distance of the company headquarters. Other than that, it's been a really easy year. So, I mean, and, you know, it's just get up every day and figure out what the solution is. And, you know, this company is back on track. His, fortunately, those stores are open now. They actually demanded more services than ever before to get back reopened and had additional features that they wanted because of the COVID-19 things. And so because our system helps, with, for example, with appointments, and now a lot of those retailers want to do things only by appointment, that created opportunities, in fact, far more than we could service with the staff that, that we had. So it created the opposite problem. How do you meet customer expectations? in a surge of demand like that. But the, the key to the success that this company is now enjoying was the never say die attitude of the chief executive officer and infusing that with his key people. And, you know, I have found that if a CEO creates an environment, which is, it sounds like a contradiction, but it, 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 it turns out to be true, is simultaneously tough 
tough place to work, but also fun because you're part of a winning team. And sometimes, yeah, that means some people don't make it. They're counseled out of the company because they aren't uh, you know, doing the things necessary to survive. So, you know, you might call that, you know, the Netflix approach to management where you are brutally honest about expectations. The expectations are very high and uh, people are counseled out of the company if they aren't meeting it. In, there's no place to hide in a small private mm -hmm. equity backed company. You know, we might have a, we might have 15 employees, we might have 150 employees, but everybody's got to be, you know, contributing. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, what you're saying about discipline and optimism are really important. And sometimes one gets lost in favor of the other. And particularly in times like this, discipline is in, you can't put a value to that skill, but it, but it's vastly uh, uh, misunderstood. So, and, and I worked at an institution that's, you know, known globally for, for, for discipline and really nobody there knew, knew what discipline was. So it's, uh, it, it, it is something that's uh, absolutely uh, crucial, particularly in times like this. So let me just ask you, in, uh, what do you see as the primary leadership responsibility, particularly in, in this time of uh, COVID-19? So the, the primary responsibility of leadership is, I, I like to think of it in, in, in two buckets. It's the what and the who. So you are responsible for setting the goals of the company. You're like, you know, you're the captain of the ship. And, and you're going across the ocean and the direction that, that ship goes in is up to you. And yes, you have a navigator and yes, you have um, people who are great at raising and lowering the sails. But if you're heading the ship in the wrong direction, that, that company is not going to be successful. So you are the primary strategic driver of the company. And to your point, um, many small companies fail by trying to do too many things at the same time. And we have found that focus is incredibly important. These are tiny companies, you know, mm -hmm. it, trying to compare Apple computer to one of my companies, you know, it's like comparing Russia to, you know, to, to Delaware. I mean, it just, mm -hmm. there's just no comparison. And mm -hmm. so you, if you can, you literally have to have a mindset where you say, we need to get from A to B to C to D by the end of the year. How the hell are we going to do it? Mm -hmm. And and we're going to spend as much time as we need together as a team. We're going to figure out what the key elements are. We're going to measure ourselves weekly, monthly, quarterly, and, and, and for the year. And we're going to get to D by the end of the year. And folks who break it down like that in small segments and Everybody on the team knows what those small segments are, so communication is key. But of course, the second part of leadership, I'm sorry I can't break it into one key thing, but mm -hmm. is the who. So mm -hmm. great leaders attract great people. Mm -hmm. And um, the team that they surround themselves with that are honest, straightforward, trustworthy, have high work ethic, and care about the company. Mm -hmm. and have, of course, the core expertise necessary, and themselves treat people with dignity. I don't care if it's the receptionist or it's the chief executive officer. Everybody has to be treated the same. Mm -hmm. And 
that's always been in your own best interest. But today, it's an imperative. Disrespect on the basis of rank or whatever. I mean, that, that, those days, you know, are gone, thank God. And, and in small companies, how you treat everybody, um, and even if they aren't achieving things, you can still treat, treat them with dignity. And, and the, the person that pulls that off, you know, has people who are willing to go the extra mile for them. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I can say that, you know, the A, A people hire A people. You know, B people hire C people, C people hire D and F people. So uh, it's, it, it is something that, uh, and it works on both ends from the employed and, and the employer uh, dynamic is that A people are looking for A people, whether you're an employee or an employer. You know, that's, uh, that, you know, that, that's really the case. the case. Yeah, absolutely the case. So you can't run a company with only one good person. You know, the, the CEO is the starting point, but you have to have really good people, certainly at the next level of officer, uh, even in a small company. If you don't, you're, you're not going to be successful. So I, I 100% agree with you that A attracts A, you know, it, it's a matter of uh, being demanding, of starting with yourself and then, and then with others. That's why they say the most important job of a board of directors is the hiring and firing of the chief executive officer. Because if you don't get that right, you're not gonna get anything else right. And so, you know, I'm very proud that we have extremely strong chief executive officers in our company. Some we started with, and some we've had to replace, but we will end up in that right position during our ownership. So you uh, you implied uh, just previously that uh, you know uh, the, the primary leadership responsibility is is to drive uh, strategic execution. So what I'm wondering is, you know, what advice would you give to other leaders regarding strategic execution? Yeah, I think there's 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 two different elements. One, of course, is where are we trying to get to? And so I do think that, you know, there's a lot of different, you know, structures of strategic planning, but I, I'm a strong believer in formal strategic planning. Um, and I'm a strong believer that you need to set aside time for the management team. You know, we used to call them off-sites today. So sometimes they're they're done versus Zoom or whatever, but you have to allocate the, the time to work on where are we going and what are the elements that get us there. The other part is the CEO's own time. So I, I always say to a CEO, uh, I talk about instruments. So I say, you know, you've got to have a telescope, you've got to have binoculars, and you've got to have a microscope. And you got to use these different tools at different times. And yes, you need to have that telescope um, so that you understand where we're trying to get in five years. And that's where your board of directors should be of assistance to you because you're going to have ideas and they're going to talk about what they know about what the competition is doing, et cetera. Um, you're going to use your binoculars to say, what do we need to do in the next year to get to where we're, we're going? And then you, that microscope is the instrument you're going to be using the most often. That's where you're examining the, 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 the little details of what's going on in the company. The other 
instrument I talk about, I say, what is the most important tool that you have? And some people say uh, Excel spreadsheets or something like that. They'll say our CRM system or something. And I'll always say, no, it's a clock, okay? How you spend your time is the most important ingredient of you executing well. And as we all know, in our lives, there is push and pull. There's what you want to do, and there's what other people are trying to pull you to do. Some of that is necessary. It might be your wife. It might be your kids. You've got to spend some time on that. But in the hours that you've allocated for business, you have to be the master of your own time. And so I ask them to put together a pie chart and say, how do you want to be spending your time? And we're, you know, we counsel our CEOs that maybe not in the first six months when they come because they're learning the business, but once you get past that learning phase, 50% of your time should be spent externally. That's talking to customers, that's talking to prospects, that's talking to suppliers, et cetera. So you can't spend all your time just with your own team. Now you may be going to some of these meetings with a team member, a sales person or whatever, but if you don't have that clock in mind, how can you possibly ever evaluate whether you're doing what you need to do? Mm -hmm. So to me, how a CEO spends their time, what they spend it on, is something, especially young people, have a tough time with because there's always someone trying to pull them in to problem solving. And I try to coach them, your officers need to be the problem solvers, right? If you're mending the sail, you're not guiding the ship. So you've got to give them the confidence that they can solve the problem while you you know, push the entire enterprise forward. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it reminds me that, uh, you know, time is, is really the only fixed resource. And I think what you were describing in your exercise, I think that uh, that reinforces that point. A absolutely. I mean, they, I always say there's only so many things we can do because people will say, well, you know, this has this value and this has this value and this has this value. And, I, and I'll always say, the clearest sign that strategic planning failed is if you haven't crossed a lot of things off the list. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is about saying what we're not going to do, at least for now, because we can't do 10 things well in a small company. We can do one or maybe two, and that's it. And if we do them really well, better than anybody on the planet, we're going to be very successful. Right. So with, with over 35 years of experience of, you know, not just investing in companies, but investing in people, um, who, who were your leadership role models and what did you learn from them? Well, I've learned both from the leaders of my organizations. Um, I have the great advantage of having worked for, you know, Bill Bain at Bain and Company, but you know I was a very junior guy. But you know I would see his leadership style um, in organizations like uh, Advent International, run by Peter Brook, a real icon of the venture capital and private equity industry. Um, and so I had I had the great advantage of working for very very prominent, successful guys. And what 
what um, I saw from them was uh, I saw a vision. They were able to, they, they had a vision of what they were trying to do and they could articulate it to folks like me who are more junior and to customers. And they kept saying the same thing over and over and over again. And then made sure what we were doing fit that vision. So Bill Bain's vision was simple. We're going to not have strategic plans that sit on the shelf like McKinsey. Mm -hmm. We're going to have an implementation practice that's going to make sure that the strategic imperatives are actually followed by the organization. At the time, that was revolutionary. Now everybody's doing it, including McKinsey. Um, Peter Brooks' vision was to internationalize venture capital. And it was a vision that he never talked about making money. He never talked about um, how uh, we were going to be running billions of dollars. He talked about the fact that the venture capital uh, model in the United States could be brought to other parts of the, of the world and that it would help um, advance the uh, lives of people living in all these other countries. And that bigger purpose was a customer-centric purpose, was very inspirational. And the money followed. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I learned that people are inspired by ambition. These ambitions were huge. You know, it almost seemed ridiculous uh, how big they were. In, in both of those gentlemen's cases, they achieved them. Um, and, but, it, it, you know, outsized ambition, not just about the money, customer-centric, doing something that makes people's lives easier, that and, 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 and repeating it over and over and over. The vision never changed. Mm -hmm. yeah. Basically, um, it, it, it partly has to do with where do you want to go, but it really has more to do with you know, what do you want? You know, to really simplify the question as far as what is vision. You know, it's, it's, it, it becomes very simple. And what you're saying about uh, those leaders is that they knew exactly what they wanted and they communicated in a very uh, simple manner so everybody could understand it. And they kept on repeating it and reinforcing it so everybody would understand it. I had a company in the uh, OOs that was in the, um, what we called, uh, payment integrity space within healthcare payments. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sometimes called fraud and abuse. We avoided that <laughs> terminology mm -hmm. underpayments and overpayments that we were monitoring from healthcare providers on behalf of the federal government, Medicare and Medicaid, as well as uh, private insurance companies. Mm -hmm. And one of the things my CEO <clears throat> did, it was a woman is when she was talking to customers and she would ask, you know, what, what level of, you know, overpayments do you think you're getting? And what do you think you can uh, identify and what do you think you can achieve? And she would always tell them they weren't being ambitious enough. Mm -hmm. They would say, well, you know, we think that, that there might be uh, 
5%. And if we could, if we could knock off 1% of that, it'd be fantastic. And she'd say, you're not being ambitious enough. I guarantee you, we can do far better than that. Mm-hmm. And it was inspirational because it, she was telling the customers they weren't asking for enough. And her style was to tell them that we could achieve things they didn't think were possible mm-hmm. and then do it. Yeah. One of the leaders of uh, humanistic psychology is Abraham Maslow you know, with the uh, hierarchy of needs. And one of his famous quotes is, human nature has always been so short. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah we, we, we always, uh, you know, we, we, that's part of our human nature is that we tend to uh, uh, underestimate our own abilities. And it, we're, we're, we're vastly more capable of what we, what we ever could dream about. I mean, you look at the great entrepreneurs out there of the last 20 years and, you know, their ambitions were silly. They were ridiculous. They were unachievable and yet they achieved them. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, I've got, you know, uh, any Bill Gates, but, but in our own way, in our own niches, in our own programs, we can do things that people five years later say, I can't believe that company became what it became. No one would have guessed that. And it's because the CEO was wildly ambitious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I trade in the currency of belief systems. And uh, the vast majority of people have this uh, erroneous belief of what exactly you're saying is that they uh, uh, underestimate their abilities uh, and, and then do whatever they can to see if they can actually you know, achieve that. Uh, and they use all kinds of irrational thinking why they can't. Okay. But then they look at people, you know, who, who really understand what their abilities are. It's absolutely rational what their abilities are, but because they think in such a different way, they're, they're viewed as irrational, right? They're, they're viewed as crazy. But in actuality, they're the most rational people on the planet, and they continue to use that, uh, that, those rational beliefs to help them achieve those goals. And this is what the majority of, the, uh, of people don't understand, is that we're, you know, if you learn how to think, not only will you set higher goals, you'll achieve higher goals. It, it, and, of course, we benefit greatly from the fact that we live in an era of exponential development technologically, for example. So it's possible to do things logarithmically where a hundred years ago, you know, you might not have had the technological tools necessary to expand. Obviously, some people did all right for themselves like Rockefeller. So mm-hmm. they figured out how to, how to expand pretty, pretty well, but it was harder then. There are more uh, opportunities today to grow exponentially than there ever have been in the history of mankind. Mm -hmm. And your job as a leader is to find one of those niches and to utilize that technology to your benefit. Even if you're not a technology company, you can still utilize broadcast technologies such as digital marketing to get your message out to far more people, to target it 
far better than it's ever been targeted before, to understand your market in a much shorter period of time than was possible even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So when, when you or one of your management teams does uh, accomplish that, uh, what some people would think an unrealistic goal, how do you celebrate or how do you relax? <laughs> well, first of all, you know, we talk about it, right? And so mm -hmm. there's a tendency to, to, to come to board meetings or whatever and to, and to say, uh, oh, we had a good quarter, you know? And I try to, I try to uh, make a bigger deal about it, <laughs> to just say, hey, I know where we were a year ago and I know what obstacles we overcame and I know how hard you've been working and you did it. And sometimes they just need to hear it that somebody knows about it other than their husband or wife, you know, and that we see it. And just that recognition, and particularly publicly, you know, whether it's in front of their management team, in front of the rest of the board, makes a big difference. And, you know, we do, um, you know, celebrate, you know, I certainly, when I have a big win, you know, I, I go out to dinner with my family and, 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 and we spend some time celebrating, you know, and, uh, and I share with them my defeats as well. And, and they know, you know, what's, what's going wrong. So I, I do talk about business at home. <laughs> um, I talk about it to, to my kids. They all know what I do. They, they know a fair amount of detail. I've even had a daughter who's worked for me part-time is about to graduate from undergrad. And um, so I, you know, I, I, I love what I do. I, you know, obviously I've been doing it for 35 years, so I must, must have found something I like. You know, I have the great honor of being able to work with highly motivated, excited, ambitious people who want to change the world. And what could be better than that? Yeah, well, uh, just the idea of acknowledgement has evolved over the past 50, even maybe in the past 30 years. So that's a, uh, that, that, that's a great way to uh, uh, conclude this, uh, this podcast. So um, how can people contact you, Craig? Yeah, the best way is still, still by email, you know, Craig at tpeboulder.com works just great. And, um, you know, I always respond. I try to, I try to have a hundred percent response rate to, people to contact me, you know, just understand we do a specific thing. We're not in the venture capital business anymore. We're, we're in the, uh, we're in the private equity business, small buyouts, but uh, that email is still the best way. Okay. Well, thank you, Craig. I certainly appreciate your time and energy and uh, we certainly uh, wish you the best of luck. So uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I'm Dr. Stephen Long of Motair Consulting. You've been listening to the X Factor podcast. Uh, the podcast for leaders by leaders. Thanks again.